This week on the Elucidators Decoding Global News, we step into the Caucasus, mountainous Eurasian region, where a rivalry between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the contested region of Nagorno-Karabakh has erupted into open fighting. Could neighboring great powers Turkey and Russia be drawn into a larger war that neither really wants to fight? Boy, we sure hope not. Welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I'm your host, Steve Pally. With me, as always, is my co-host, Pete Newsom. Pete, how you living? I'm living okay, man. How about yourself? Yeah. I'm chilling. I can't complain too much. I can't complain about one thing, though. Um, (laughs) This is a correction from last episode. Yeah. And this one hits a little close to home. Turns out... I insisted that uh, Mao Zedong's name is pronounced Mo Zedong. This is not correct. Mao rhymes with cow, not no. The lesson to be drawn here is that everybody should listen to Pete, not me. (laughs) That is all. (laughs) Look, man, far be it from me to say I told you Sal, but maybe in this case I did. Yeah, you you totally did. We all forgot that you called him Chairman Mo already, I think, so it's all good. Okay. Great. Uh, Let's go with that. Let's move on. Let's move on to a listener question. We love listener questions. This is a really excellent one from Jamie in Los Angeles about nuclear weapons, one of my favorite topics. (laughs) Jamie writes, it's been about 75 years since the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think there were about 60,000 nuclear weapons in the world in the 1980s. Russia currently has the most, with about 6,500. How is it that no one has used one against another country since World War II? There's been so much time, and there are so many nuclear weapons. True. I heard that many were lost when the USSR went down, and modern technology must make it easier to manufacture them. How has a terrorist group, small country, or even a big country not used one by now? So that's a great question. And it just so happens that I've done a little bit of research into nuclear weapons, so... I will attempt to answer this question quickly, but we could spend an entire episode on nuclear weapons if we wanted to, and we probably will at some point. So, Jamie, the reason why nukes haven't been used by a terrorist group, small country, or even a big country by now, first of all, they're not actually that easier to manufacture. In almost every case, it takes a nation-state's resources to be able to find the fuel, produce fuel that would be enriched uranium or plutonium. You need precision machine components. You need scientists, especially physicists, chemists. You need testing facilities. And while some studies have suggested that non-state actors might be able to make a crude device, it's, it's just beyond the reach of a lot of these groups, even well-resourced ones like Al-Qaeda, for instance or Islamic State. Now, if Islamic State succeeded in taking over Iraq and Syria and drew those resources and created a military-industrial complex with scientists and labs and everything, they might be able to do it. But you have to consider, Iran's been at it for 10 or 15 years, huge, powerful country. 
not there yet. North Korea has managed it, but it took literally 40 years of trying. Right. So Iran was met with Stuxnet, right? So Yeah, we also stopped them. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we stopped them. That helped them not get there. Very true. Fair point. But point I'm trying to make is it's just, it's actually not that easy. It's not simple. Gotcha. So is that to say the likelihood of like a suitcase bomb like you would see in, I don't know, 24 or <laughs> for instance, countless movies is yeah. unlikely? It turns out Kiefer Sutherland doesn't have that much to worry about. We, the Soviet Union and the United States, I think both produced suitcase nukes during the Cold War. After the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the United States stepped in and with the Russian government, immediately helped the Russians secure the Soviet nuclear arsenal. Hmm. Um, some stuff did, in fact, go missing. A lot of nuclear fuel, for instance. But what can you do with that if you're not a terrorist group? You try to sell it on the black market. Funny thing about markets, anybody can buy on the black market, including the United States. So we've been out there buying up Soviet uranium on the black market. That's very interesting. <laughs> so that would be a covert operation. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We've probably spent billions of dollars doing it, but that's cheap compared to what could happen, right? That's very interesting to think we've got CIA agents out there buying black market nuclear fuel. That's quite... It is. Another thing to think about is to ask the question, what are nuclear weapons actually good for? It may be less than you think. Pete, what are nuclear weapons good for? Absolutely nothing. No, they're definitely good for something. What is oh, it? Let me start over. Well, they're a good deterrent, as it turns out. Like They're a great deterrent. What they're specifically good for is incinerating cities. Mm, That's sure, literally sure. the only thing they're good for. That's a given, yeah. They're good at that. So if you wanted to use a nuclear weapon offensively, you'd probably have to use it to incinerate a city. What set of circumstances would there be where you'd need to incinerate a city as another state? Well, I suppose that the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings actually represent such a situation in that sure. there was a conflict that was never going to end because one party was willing to sacrifice almost everything to continue it. Yeah. And plus, this came after a war that killed 20, 30, 40, 50 million people worldwide, depending on how you count. So what's another 100,000, right? In that type of calculating, yeah. It's about proportionality. And in fact, we had firebombed Tokyo and killed probably more people with conventional weapons than we did with nuclear weapons in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Another thing to consider. But the key to this is proportionality, and the point I'm driving at is there just aren't that many situations where you need to incinerate a city. <laughs> there just aren't. There are plenty of situations where you need to destroy somebody's army or inflict punishment. But incinerating cities is just not cool, except in the most dire of circumstances. The two circumstances where something like this could be allowed would be somebody else has launched nuclear weapons at you, or somebody is invading your country and about to take it over. So there's a reason they call it the nuclear option. It's, it's yes. the big one. <laughs> there's also a reason why they call it the nuclear taboo. 
And this is something that the nuclear powers have worked hard to establish since World War II, making it really not cool for anybody to use nuclear weapons. To use them. Yes. And also for countries that don't have them to develop them, right? Correct. It's the, the non-proliferation regime is a big part of that as well. But we have, I think, successfully delegitimized the use of nuclear weapons as a weapon of war. It is a weapon of statecraft. It is mm -hmm. a weapon of deterrence. But as long as deterrence does not fail, as long as there is stable deterrence on both sides, then we have not had a nuclear war. Never say never. <laughs> but Yeah, let's go ahead and knock on wood. Thanks for the awesome question, Jamie. If any of our listeners out there have questions, we love answering questions, or at least trying to, write us at theelucidators, all one word, at gmail.com, or reach us out to us on Facebook, and we will do our utmost to answer. So, Pete. Stephen. Another question. It's a question <laughs> I ask you every week. Where are we this week? What's going on? This week, Steve, we are in the Caucasus the Caucasus. The Caucasus region, because there is the potential for a war to develop between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the contested region of Nagorno-Karabakh. That is a lot of vowels and consonants. It is. I've... We're going to unpack that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do. So, this weekend, open hostilities erupted between the two neighboring countries in the Caucasus region. Mm. Yeah, I'll drop some knowledge. There have been at least 50 deaths so far. And this is quite serious. We've got heavy armor, warplanes, artillery, and drones all in use. This is not just trading small arms fire. This is actual battalion-scale movements, seemingly, on both sides. Both sides have declared martial law and a full military mobilization, including drawing up reserves. So nobody really declares war anymore. That's just not a thing that has happened much since World War II mm. anywhere. But we're kind of right on the brink of that. Basically, war is starting to happen, whether it's yeah. been technically declared or not. Yeah, and it's happening in a pretty delicate part of the world, the Caucasus. We'll explain more about that. But for now, suffice it to say that there are some powerful countries kind of on the borders of the situation that risk being drawn in. In particular... Turkey is on Azerbaijan's side, while Russia is on Armenia's side. The Azerbaijanis, or Azeris, are ethnic Turks, so they have a linkage with Turkey, heritage-wise, while the Armenians and the Turks hate each other because of a little thing called the Armenian Genocide, by which about a million Armenians perished about 100 years ago. Yeah, bad scene. On top of this, Russia sells weapons to Armenia, has military bases there, and is a treaty ally, meaning that they are obligated to come to Armenia's aid if Armenia is invaded in a war. That being said, it's not clear if Russia's obligations extend to Nagorno-Karabakh, because this is a contested region. Got it. It's not technically Armenia, or nobody thinks it's Armenia except for Armenia, <laughs> more specifically. <laughs> it's not recognized by any other country as being Armenian territory. Yeah, and on top of this, Iran is also in the mix, and they're a little bit of a wild card. We'll, we'll get into that. They're, they're mostly on Armenia's side, but not always. Okay. 
So the big risk is for Russia and Turkey to be drawn in. Larger powers. Correct. Iran is also a larger power. So you have kind of three much bigger, more powerful countries bordering the situation, watching this thing unfold. And it's just starting. I see. So what this potentially is, is in fact a resumption of a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan that followed the aftermath of the USSR's collapse in the early 90s. There was a, a very big war between those two countries. And mm. uh, in that war, 30,000 plus people were killed and 1 million were displaced. So that's quite a few. Yeah, not small. Not small at all. Nagorno-Karabakh formally belongs to Azerbaijan, but it has an Armenian mar- majority and is occupied by Armenian forces. That's right. And as you mentioned earlier, no other country on earth sees uh, Nagorno-Karabakh as an Armenian territory except for Armenia. Yeah, but on the other hand, it is Armenian majority, um, especially now that the Armenian majority in Nagorno-Karabakh has expelled all the Azerbaijanis or killed all the Azerbaijanis that live there. And we'll, we'll get to that dark bit of history. There was a ceasefire in this war in 1994 after three years of full-scale state-on-state violence. But there have been flare-ups ever since then, including in 2016, pretty bad one. And earlier this year, 2020, uh, 16 Azerbaijanis were killed in July in the north of Nagorno-Karabakh, including an important Azerbaijani general. And this resulted in protests in Baku, which is the capital of Azerbaijan. Basically, uh, the populace came out and demanded retribution for this and demanded that the Azerbaijani government kick the Armenians out of Nagorno-Karabakh once and for all. Hmm. That was in July. So one might conclude that the Azerbaijani government has been planning this since then. Yeah, a full offensive, you know, would take several months to plan. So, (laughs) kind of makes sense, yeah. Okay. What's the diplomatic situation? Here's the diplomatic situation. Turkey's president, Erdogan, is 100% behind the Azeris. That figures. Yeah, Turkey and Armenia hate each other. Yep. (laughs) So, Turkey is demanding that Armenia leave Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenia claims that the Azeris are using Turkish drones, planes, and advisors against them. Yeah. Which, do you think that's believable? I do. Obviously, Armenia has an incentive to accuse uh, Erdogan and the Turks, uh, or rather, to accuse the Azeris and the Turks of not fighting fair. But knowing what we know about Erdogan's foreign policy, which is remarkably aggressive and bellicose throughout like the greater Turkish world, Mm-hmm. which now extends from Libya all the way to Nagorno-Karabakh, apparently, <laughs> <laughs> and many places in between, like Syria. It, it makes sense that they would have out- outfitted the Azerbaijanis with the most advanced Turkish weapons. Yes. There's a question as to whether Erdogan has deployed Syrian militiamen to Nagorno-Karabakh in the number of 4,000. Yeah, so that's kind of weird. Syria is, I guess, in the neighborhood, but it's also not either of these countries, and they have their own war to fight. So why would Syrian militiamen turn up 
in Nagorno-Karabakh to fight the Armenians. Kind of strange. The answer is, potentially, this has not been confirmed yet. This is another uh, claim that Armenia has made, but again, kind of makes sense. These guys have been on Erdogan's payroll, largely. He pays them, he arms them, and by offering them bonus pay, he can basically get these guys deployed to other trouble spots where Turkey needs sort of uh, cannon fodder or deniable forces. These are not Turkish soldiers, right? So no Turks are getting killed, just Syrians. And they're not members of Turkey's armed forces either. So yeah. So that if they <laughs> are killed, that doesn't hurt Erdogan politically within Turkey. Correct. And he has plausible deniability outside of Turkey. And that, that kind of helps him continue to pull this stuff. So these guys have actually turned up all the way over in Libya, for instance. And now, potentially, they're turning up in Nagorno-Karabakh as well. And I read an article about this. The basic story is that they get a big raise to leave Syria and, and go elsewhere. They get a bump and pay up to $1,500 a month, which is like eight to 10 times more than they're usually paid. Wow. And yeah, with that kind of money, that's kind of like, yeah, we'll go fight whoever, wherever, right? Sure. Major incentive. Yeah. So Erdogan has these private armies, basically, um, that he can use in situations like this one. Got it. So there are natural gas and oil pipelines that run from the Caspian Sea to Turkey and Europe. That's part of this picture. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So Azerbaijan is basically a petro state. So they have oil and gas in and around the Caspian Sea. And the Turks need that energy. They're very energy hungry. And we talked about that on our Erdogan episode, maybe a month or two ago. They're looking for energy in the Eastern Mediterranean. They've found energy in the Black Sea. They need more. So they need this gas and oil to flow to Turkey and beyond. And they've invested heavily in this infrastructure and these pipelines. Again, the Azerbaijanis, ethnic Turks, natural allies, worth investing in from the Turks' perspective. And so they really don't want Azerbaijan to lose any wars or have this infrastructure be affected by, for instance, Armenian sabotage. <laughs> I see. So they have a very strong interest in backing Azerbaijan in this conflict, obviously. Correct. Uh, the Russians, on the other hand, are to some extent competing with the Azerbaijanis in, in terms of exporting natural gas and oil products. So they don't have the same interest. They might have the opposite interest, actually. Mm -hmm. Right. And they are, in fact, in a defense alliance with uh, Armenia in certain regards? Yeah. They sell them weapons, the kind of, maybe not their absolute best stuff, but a lot of advanced hardware. Hmm. And they lend them money with which to buy the weapons. So that's kind of a nice one-two punch. Yeah, it helps. Russia and Germany have called for a ceasefire in this conflict. And in, in addition, Iran has offered to mediate or did offer to uh, mediate after the July clashes. Right. Which is interesting, I suppose. What, what's Iran's interest there? So I think Iran is mostly interested in not having their Azerbaijani minority get too fired up and start fighting in this war because then they might come back to Iran 
and cause problems, uh, separatist type issues. Got it. Again, the Azerbaijanis are Iran's largest ethnic minority, and Iran actually has a lot of separatist problems hmm. with ethnic minorities. So they're, they're probably a little worried about that. I think more broadly, like the powers surrounding this region just don't need this right now. They don't need it. Russia has a lot going on internally, which we've also talked about. They don't need it, and it looks like this might be spiraling back out of control in a way it hasn't since 1994. Like, there have been little flare-ups, but the countries surrounding, uh, bordering Nagorno-Karabakh appeared to have not really thought that it would escalate. That's right. And in particular... Neither Russia nor Iran is that interested in Turkey gaining more power, <laughs> right? And so if, if this is a move on Erdogan's part to try to expand or dominate even more of the region, like they're definitely not interested in that. And they don't want to have to fight right now. Like that's, that's really inconvenient for both countries. Sure. There's a, a lot going on yeah. for them. So there was a UN Security Council emergency meeting today. Right. Yeah. So this just kicked off like a few days ago. And I think that the great powers on the UN Security Council have been kind of watching this thing develop. And it's starting to look like it could go really hot. Both Mm -hmm. sides have fully mobilized and declared martial law. That's not usually a good sign. And we could have just like full scale tank battles and artillery battles and stuff like this, like combined arms full-on warfare. Nobody wants to see that particularly, except maybe Erdogan. He's right. not on the UN Security Council, as far as I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're going to try to do something about it. They're taking it seriously. They see the, the threat of this thing escalating. Right. And uh, a lot of bad things could happen. Obviously, refugees uh, combined with COVID is never a good thing. Having oil and gas being taken off the world market unexpectedly Mm -hmm. is not usually a good thing, although... Destabilization. Destabilization, yeah, of the market, although demand is is down so much that I doubt it would affect stuff that much. Hmm. Another good reason to do this right now, by the way, because the COVID economy requires so much less energy. Right, so some thought might have gone into the timing on it. I think so. So if you're Azerbaijan and your infrastructure gets dinged up, well, guess what? You weren't selling that much of the stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. You'll have time to repair it, maybe. Yeah. Give a little background on Nagorno Karabakh. Like, what's the deal with it? Oh, are, have we reached the deal section? Yeah, we certainly have. Deals on wheels. Awesome. Yeah, Nagorno Karabakh is a contested principality or district in the middle of the Caucasus. The Caucasus is this sort of mountainous, energy rich region bordered by Russia on the north, Turkey on the west, Iran on the south, and the Caspian Sea on the east. Mm. So it's this box of, I guess, what could charitably be called people that really don't like each other. (laughs) Lots of tribes, lots of historical enmities, lots of ethnic problems. Armenia and Azerbaijan, in terms of recent history were both Soviet socialist republics. So they were, they were under the thumb of the USSR. Mm. So when that was the case, they couldn't fight. They couldn't do anything because it was, you know, yeah, 
That was kept under a lid, yeah. Under a lid, very much so. But Armenia is Christian, and in fact, is very proud of the fact that they were the first nation to formally convert to Christianity in the fourth century AD. Oh, wow. And the Armenian Christian church is very ancient. They have their own patriarch, I believe. Hmm. I'll look that up after the show, but I'm pretty (laughs) sure they do. Yeah. Um, But Armenian Christianity is like very, very old. It's up there with Ethiopian Christianity. Pretty cool. Meanwhile, Azerbaijan is Shia Muslim. So when this region was under the control of the USSR, our main man, Joseph Stalin, Uncle Joe, (laughs) came in and just divvied up the disputed regions between the two countries. You get a little bit here, you get a little bit there. And this middle one, Nagorno-Karabakh, this one's tough. I'm going to award this to Azerbaijan, technically, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be an autonomous region within Azerbaijan because it's Armenian majority. And Mm -hmm. that Armenian majority is going to get some special rights. Not clear what that means in the context of the USSR because nobody had any rights. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But yeah, it was, and, and, you know, it's also not clear whether there was any meaningful distinction between Soviet socialist republics. You know, it's like, they're all kind of digested by Russia at this Mm -hmm. point. That was a period of time that doesn't really apply to what came before and what came after. Exactly. Yeah, they were all in the belly of the beast at that point in time. Of course, the USSR doesn't last. The USSR falls apart starting in basically 1990. Both countries declare independence from the USSR in 1991, right before or maybe right after the USSR formally dissolves. Hmm. And the Armenians that live in Nagorno-Karabakh, as Armenia and Azerbaijan are becoming independent countries, those Armenians that live in Nagorno-Karabakh secede from the new country of Azerbaijan and say, we're going to Armenia. And Azerbaijan says, no, you're not. (laughs) So we have a three-year war. Wow. And that's when 30,000 people were killed? 30,000 people are killed. Azerbaijan ends up losing 15% of its land to Armenia. So that means Nagorno-Karabakh and seven surrounding districts that Armenia, because they won this war, just occupy. So they they are de facto in control. They're not de jure in control. They're not supposed to be there, Mm -hmm. but they are there. Meanwhile, Azerbaijanis used to be about a quarter of the population of Nagorno-Karabakh, but they are now all gone. They were either pushed out or killed. Mm -hmm. So this area was ethnically cleansed, which meant about three quarters of a million refugees from these occupied areas. Wow. While this happened, Armenians elsewhere in Azerbaijan were pushed out in response, especially out of the capital of Baku in a parallel ethnic cleansing. So a lot of people got moved around in a not very nice way during this war. Right. And the period following that has been relatively stable all the way up until now with a few flare-ups here and there. Yeah, so there's this argument that ethnic cleansing, as horrible as it is, generally results in a more lasting peace because you're just no longer in proximity and there's no mixing. So there's just less opportunity Hmm. to fight, except on the borders of the contested areas. 
And that's why you've seen these sort of continuing border clashes around the edges of Nagorno-Karabakh. The last big flare-up was earlier this year in July, but prior to that, there was one in 2016 mm-hmm. that this group of France, Russia, and the United States helped broker an end to. And they call themselves the Minsk group of countries after the capital of Belarus, where unfortunately demonstrators against Lukashenko are being beaten and arrested and and so on at the moment. Yeah. Coincidental name, but they might want to change it at some point. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know that I want to be named after Minsk at this point, but <laughs> Russia might still be Yeah, they're they're down. Uh, yeah. Anyway, all this to say, there is actually a peace framework in place. And the deal goes something like this. Armenia withdraws from those occupied districts around Nagorno-Karabakh. And then Nagorno-Karabakh holds a referendum to decide which country to join. Hmm. Which means that they probably join Armenia because there are no Azerbaijanis left in Nagorno-Karabakh. They all got kicked out or killed. Unsurprisingly, there's been no agreement between Armenia and Azerbaijan on the details. And the most important detail is... Do returning Azeris get to vote in the referendum? (laughs) Sure. Is part of this picture that a number of Azeris are returning to Nagorno-Karabakh? Also also unclear. I think that a lot of them would like to go back and are in fact intent on going back. So that was meant to be part of the uh, peace framework from the Minsk group. Yeah, but this is sort of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. This can no longer be a mixed territory in either group's opinion. Right. So any sort of referendum would just result in the territory going formally to Armenia and being formally recognized as part of Armenia, which has not happened. And Azerbaijan is clearly not willing to accept that result. Yeah, no, they're, they're not down with it. And so, yeah, there's been no resolution whatsoever. No resolution and this week, a possible huge escalation. Yeah. So what's going to happen in this situation? We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What we do know is that Azerbaijan has been the wealthier country because it's a petrostate. And they have poured their oil and gas money into rearming. Armenia has tried to keep pace. And what this means is that if this war goes forward, if it's allowed to go forward, it will probably be much more destructive than what happened in the 1990s, as bad as that was, because we're talking about modern armaments on both sides. Both sides are armed by great powers. Armenia has been armed by Russia and also given money to buy arms. Yes. By Russia. And Azerbaijan has been armed by Turkey. And is just rich because it has oil and gas money as well. Yeah, not as rich as they used to be because, as mentioned earlier, oil and gas are mm-hmm. not as uh, expensive as they used to be. But yeah, they, as far as GDP goes, for instance, Azerbaijan is roughly twice as wealthy Armenia. on a per capita basis than okay. Armenia. But that's also kind of fake because it's oil and gas money. It doesn't mean that the people themselves are actually wealthier. Got it. Okay. So why did this, like, why did this happen in the first place, this latest escalation? Yeah. Well... Good question. The bulk of evidence suggests that the Azeris planned this out pretty carefully with Turkish help. Okay. And you brought this up earlier, Pete. You said, hmm, 
there was this flare up in July where the Azerbaijanis lost 16 people, including an important general. Mm-hmm. Then we had these demonstrations, right? And it takes probably two months to plan a military incursion, an operation with combined arms, artillery, air power, heavy armor, and infantry. That takes a little bit of time to plan. So the, the timing are. is about right. Eight to ten weeks, yeah. And so it's it seems like the seeds were planted and now they have grown, <laughs> basically. Right. Okay. So this is the moment where Azerbaijan is saying this needs to be resolved. Once and for all. Once and for all. Yeah. Um, unclear whether they can actually make that happen or whether they will be allowed to make it happen. If the Turks have their way, then yes, this will be resolved once and for all because Erdogan has basically parroted and amplified the Azerbaijani line, saying, again, Armenians should leave Nagorno-Karabakh, which they will never do voluntarily. Mm -hmm. And this should be resolved in Azerbaijan's favor once and for all. So when he says stuff like that, Erdogan likes to make threats and run his mouth, as we've seen. Mm -hmm. But Turkey is also right next door to Romania. (laughs) (laughs) And they have a very large army. And one wonders whether if things start to go poorly for the Azerbaijanis, whether they might not come in from the West and put the Armenians in some kind of pincher movement between the Azerbaijanis and, and the Turks. That would be very bad because in that eventuality, Russia would be bound by treaty to respond in defense of the Armenians. So then you have Russian soldiers and Turkish soldiers fighting directly. Yes. And this has actually happened in Syria, apparently by accident. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's been a few accidental crossings of the streams between Turkey and Russia, because I think both Turkish and Russian military have been in Syria. I think you're right. (laughs) Yeah. Not the case in Libya yet, but it has happened in Syria. If it happened in the Caucasus, it would be much bigger. Okay. So that would be obviously a huge problem, a huge geopolitical problem. Yeah. Recall that Turkey is a NATO member. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. I'm not sure if I want to recall that at this moment. Yeah. I I prefer not to think about it. Um, But we would then be treaty-bound, I mean, depending on a lot of details and... Whether or not we'd actually do anything remains to be seen. At this point, it's like Turkey is just like the worst possible alliance member you can have. It's that (laughs) guy who is part of your crew that is just always mouthing off at the wrong times to the wrong people. Bro, you have my back, right? Come on, let's do this. Like, oh, no, please. Like, come on, dude. Come on, buddy. So one hopes that we're able to step in and restrain the Turks from doing something stupid like this because it could get very ugly very fast. Right, right. Erdogan and Putin are now at loggerheads in three important places, Syria, Libya, and Nagorno-Karabakh. And these are two big, powerful countries, great powers. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if Turkey's a great power. Russia certainly is. Turkey, uh, Erdogan has... A lot to if if Turkey was to get into a war, Erdogan would not hold back though because 
he has an image to maintain domestically. No, I, he doesn't give the impression of being a guy who holds back ever. He seems to be a guy who likes to escalate, like even more than Putin does. Putin generally doesn't pick fights he can't win, or if he if he does, the damage is usually limited. Is what I'll say about okay. Putin. Like he has a lot of wounds from which he's bleeding, like Ukraine, for instance, and now Belarus and mm-hmm. the Navalny situation and all the rest of it. But none of these are like fatal. Uh huh. You look at what Erdogan's doing, and you're just like, dude. Like you've got the Greeks riled up, <laughs> you've <laughs> got the French riled up, you've got the Armenians riled up, you have the Russians riled up. It's like basically everybody surrounding Turkey is is now watching these guys and just being like, what are you even doing? Like, why are you doing this? Right. So Erdogan and Turkey have some ambition about something. Seemingly, yeah. It, it remains to be seen how far they'll go. Again, in situations like this, the most likely outcome is not full-scale war that draws everybody in. Mm-hmm. Everybody remembers World, World War I. Nobody wants that to happen again, especially not right now. Yeah, now again, <laughs> yeah. Russia and Iran and the United States and France and everybody else, like nobody wants to fight mm-hmm. other right. than the Azerbaijanis and maybe the Turks. I think that the Armenians don't want to fight either, but they absolutely will because they got attacked. Right. The status quo would be far preferable for them and everyone except the Turks and the Azerbaijanis, it sounds like. Um, yeah. Letting that sleeping dog lie would have been preferable for most parties. Sure. And sounds like the Azerbaijanis potentially with, in combination with the Turks planned this conflagration that's going on right now, most likely. It seems at least possible, if not probable. There's not enough information one way or the other to be able to say that conclusively. Got it. You know, the the Armenians have basically said as much, but they would say that whether or not it was true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, It, it, it probably is true, but we don't know that for sure. And again, this is happening when the United States is distracted. Of course, tonight was the the first presidential debate, which I did not watch, but we're focused on domestic politics at the moment. So Mike Pompeo, I'm sure, has issued a statement calling on cooler heads to prevail or, you know, some kind of boilerplate. I don't know what, if anything, we're actually going to do about this. Um, I think this is going to come down to... Russia talking to the Turks, maybe the Iranians getting involved as well. And the French are more active in the region than they've been in a long time. They've come in and are now active in Lebanon, actually. They've been more active in Libya as well. That's Um, right. They're helping broker the post-explosion situation in Lebanon. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, France also has some diplomatic pull. So hopefully between France and Russia... They can talk down the Turks and put this genie back in the bottle. So you think most likely in three months, things will look basically like they did a month ago. The war right. won't escalate. Yeah, I mean, in, in this type of situation, Sumi like to say, like, status quo bias, right? Things are more likely to go to the status quo than they are to escalate. But the international situation is also clearly changing in a more chaotic direction because the United States is less focused on international affairs. This is the kind of brush fire that the United States would step in and help squash 
um, right. even five years ago. And it's just not really something we do anymore. You add that to COVID. COVID is a, like the ultimate wild card and yeah. just an expander of trouble <laughs> in every possible direction. It It's going to status quo bias a lot of countries because they're like, you know, Iran has major, major internal problems because of COVID. Russia, major internal problems because of COVID. You know, you'd think that these countries would fight less than more. And that kind of seems to be their attitude. Yeah. Most parties involved are not happy about this escalation. No. And I would say my final thoughts on this are that the reason it's so noteworthy is that the threat of an escalation to an actual war caught most parties involved by surprise. Yeah, totally. In past skirmishes between the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis over this region, things have just like de-escalated on their own, just come to a resolution. Yeah, not necessarily on their own. I think that it's always, well, probably in some cases, um, you have border clashes and then they kind of just die down. I guess I mean to say that there, there hasn't been the threat of it escalating to like a full-blown all-out war like there was in 1991. Correct. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the closest was 2016. And remember that Russia, France, and the U.S. all stepped in at the same time. Got it. Yeah. When, when that went down and just calmed things down. Um, and that didn't happen at least right away in this scenario. It hasn't yet. The UN Security Council is, is getting involved. And They're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah, so let's slow this down. This is rapidly spiraling out of control. And we hope it's not too late. We hope that there can be a ceasefire and a demobilization. Because you look at border clashes, right? And there are border clashes all over the place all the time. There are border clashes between India and Pakistan very regularly. There are border clashes now between India and China in the Himalayas, mm -hmm. same region. And if we're getting into this escalatory mode internationally, then those clashes might be more likely to move towards full conflagration, full engagement. And that's what you really don't want to see. Is really big countries start moving because that's when you get into real problems. Armenia and Azerbaijan, this is not great. We don't want to see this happen because last time wasn't great. And these are small countries, but they did a lot of damage to, to each other and will mm -hmm. do even more damage this time. And it'll be bad for everybody involved. But you talk about Russia and Turkey getting into it or China and India or India and Pakistan. This is 10 to 100 times worse, right? Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't want little fires to grow into big fires. We live in California. We know that. All right. I think we've done Nagorno-Karabakh, huh? I think we have, dude. All right. Thanks a lot, Pete. And I will talk to you next week. Thanks, Steve. Talk to you soon. Bye.